great to be with you. As always, always fantastic, you know, when we come together as God's people, we meet and we hear from God together, isn't it? Now, we need to pray, as always, before we jump straight to our sermon. Two things we can pray for, as uh, David mentioned about Christianity Explored, we do want to pray for God's Spirit to be at work in those people who are attending to uh, change their hearts so that they can receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, and another thing that we need to pray for as well is we want to continue praying for the Senior Pastor Search Committee to pray that God will find somebody who is suited to lead us uh, into the next uh, era of the life of Subi Church. So we are going to pray. We are going to draw near to God through our prayer. So let me invite you to pray just in your own seats. Also, if there's anything you need prayer for, feel free to pray for that as well. And then I'll lead us in prayer after a few moments. So let's pray right now. Father, we come before you and we draw near to you through our prayers. Lord, we want to acknowledge and first really recognize what a wonderful, glorious privilege that is that we can draw near to you. We can pray to you all because of what you have done for us in and through Christ. Father, we want that wonderful privilege and opportunity and that grace be given and be known and recognized by those who are attending Christianity Explored. We pray that your Spirit will work in those who are attending, that they will come and recognize Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior that they would turn to Him and find joy in Him. Father, we do ask those who are Christians, who are there, we do pray <clears throat> that they will be salt and light, they would display the love of Christ to those who are there. And Father, we also pray for the senior pastor's search. Father, we, as human beings, we don't know what the future holds, but we do know that You are one who loves us, the one who has helped us to persevere on as a church. And Lord, we trust that you would find the right person to lead this church. And Father, we pray for discernment for those in a search committee. We pray for wisdom. And Father, we pray that as a congregation, we continue to look to you. Look to you as our rock, our God who has loved us and gave us your son. And this evening, as we come to your passage this evening, we pray for your spirit to bear work in our hearts so that we will receive your word, so that we can praise you and persevere in our faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let me start with this, this, this phrase you probably have heard over the last few months or last few years. The phrase, deconstructing your faith. In case you don't know what that means, deconstruction is, well, as you would, can guess from that, is the opposite of construction. Right? Instead of building something, what happens is that you are taking it apart piece by piece. So with the deconstructing of your faith, means taking what you have always taken for granted in your faith, and then you pull it apart piece by piece. Now, this phrase really gained popularity over the last few months and last few years uh, because we have a string of high-profile Christians declaring that they are no longer followers of Christ, 
and that they are going through a process of deconstructing their faith. Now, you might be aware of some of these people that I'm referring to, you know, from YouTube celebrities to um, worship leaders to pastors. And each of their announcements via social media, uh, they give different reasons, they give different justifications for their decisions, and they will post questions about the Christian faith that has caused them to doubt the goodness or the true, how true the Christian faith is. And they will post questions that, you know, they say they've never been asked before because of their Christian bubble they are a part of. And at this point in time, we recognize that they did not persevere in their faith. Now, there are many articles that have been written to talk about this phenomenon of the deconstructing the Christian faith, and many reasons that have been speculated about uh, you know, why these high-profile Christians are leaving the faith. I won't get into all the reasonings, but one of the things I want to discuss and talk about is, as Christians, how then do we persevere on in our faith? How do we persevere in our faith in a culture where everything seems to be pushing us away from Christ more and more? Not only that, how do we persevere when we ourselves, we are prone to wander away from God because of our sinful self? What are some of the things that God has called us to do that will help us in the perseverance of our faith? Now, many passages that we can focus on, but this evening, what we are going to do, what we are going to focus on is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. And hopefully, as, you, as I read it, you'll notice the similar themes that's going on in this passage as those that's been read uh, to us from the Bible reading. So I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 onwards. Let me invite you to stand as I read from God's Word. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You may be seated. It is important to place this passage uh, within the context of Hebrews. So, Hebrews, as you know, was a sermon that's preached by a pastor to his congregation to encourage them to persevere in their faith. He's asking them to not be like the generation in the wilderness who perished because, well, they did not trust, uh, did not persevere in their trust in God. So, throughout the whole book, what he's urging them to do is stick to Jesus. Don't go back to Old Testament promise, uh, practices. And throughout the whole book, throughout the whole sermon, he, has, he makes two main points. And you see how that's relevant to our passage very quickly. First point is that Jesus is the true and perfect Son of God, right? He is greater than the angels. He, is great, he preached a greater message 
than the angels, greater than Moses over the house of God, provides a greater rest than the rest of Joshua. So he makes that point from Hebrews chapter 1 to 4. And the second point that he makes is that he is the great Melchizedekian high priest. He's not a Levitical priest, where you know these Levitical priests, they have to make sacrifices daily and yearly. No, no, no. He's a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who has sacrificed his own body once and for all, for all our sins. There's no need for sacrifices anymore. By this one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect those, forever those who are being made holy. And he makes that point in chapters 5 to 10. So two points he's making. Jesus is the true and perfect Son of God. He is the great, our great high priest for God's people. And the reason why, why he's making these points is that the people, the readers of Hebrews originally, they are very tempted to revert back to Old Testament promises, uh, practices, rather. And he wants to show that Jesus is greater than, in fact, that all these Old Testament practices, they're pointing to Jesus, that he wants to encourage them to persevere in Jesus. Don't be tempted by Old Testament practices, which seem to be very attractive to them. Right? Worship of angels, performing animal sacrifices, that can seem very attractive. Because what? Because it's tangible. You can see it, you can feel it, you can touch it. It makes us feel like we can contribute in some ways to our salvation. But what the author of Hebrews wants to do is, no, 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 don't go there. Hold fast to your confession of Jesus. Don't be tempted to turn away from Christ. Christ is better than all the Old Testament practices. And that's where we come to chapter 10. What do we do with what he has said? How do we hold fast to Jesus in light of what he has said? How do we persevere, in other words, in our faith in Christ? We get our answers here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 onwards. So first thing that we do, point number one, let us draw near to God, verse 19 to 22. Let us draw near to God. Let me quickly read verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. With a sincere heart. We are to draw near to God. Now, think of what that means and how big a deal that is especially to a group of people who wants to go back to Old Testament practices. What does it mean to draw near to God in Old Testament? Imagine you are an Israelite at the foot of Mount Sinai. And you have Moses there talking to you about what Yahweh has said. What does it mean to draw near to God at that point in time? That's a terrifying experience, isn't it? The author of Hebrews himself says later on in chapter 12, and he describes this experience, and this is a mountain that's burning with fire, with darkness, gloom, and storm. It is a mountain with a trumpet blast, with a terrifying voice speaking that those who heard it begged not to hear anymore. Even Moses himself trembled with fear. Drawing near to God is a very terrifying thing for them. In fact, it's not just terrifying, it's downright deadly. But then we come to chapter 10, verse 22. The author says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings. You can draw near to God with the full assurance that faith brings. There's no need to worry anymore. 
is no longer terrifying, we can draw near to God. And the reason why he can say this is right at the beginning of the sentence. Verse 19, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, we, have, we, have, we can have confidence to enter God's temple, which means being in the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. Through the sacrifice and the blood of Christ, He opened a new and living way for us to approach God with confidence. And then the second thing He says, verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God. And He's just been talking about Jesus being our great high priest who intercedes for us, whose perfect sacrifice for the people of God has put away sin once and for all. And as a result of these two things, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled clean, uh, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. We have full access to God. We can draw near to God. And this full assurance of faith is our strong confidence and conviction in what God has done and what God has accomplished for us in and through Christ. Through the work of Christ, our priest, our hearts are made clean from an unbelieving mind. And as a result of that, our bodies can live a life of obedience to God. Drawing near to God is no longer a terrifying thing, but one in which we trust in God's promises shown to us through Jesus. Drawing near to God is not conditional upon anything that we might have to do or feel. And this is something that we need to be reminded of constantly because, well, let's admit it, there are times where we do feel shame and guilt. And we feel that we dare not draw near to God. We feel unworthy to draw near to God. We see that He is holy, He is perfect, and we feel that, you know what, I need to become a better Christian first and foremost. Let me read my Bible more. Let me do more ministry. Let me evangelize more. Let me go to more Bible study. Then we draw near to God. <clears throat> or maybe some of us, we are feeling shame and guilt because of something that we have done or something that is done to us. And we feel morally dirty and filthy before God to draw near to Him. And we think, how can someone like me draw near to God? There's no hope for me. No, 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 no. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Christ, since we have this great high priest interceding for us, let us draw near to God with a heart fully trusting in a God who has loved us and gave us His Son. Let us draw near to God. And the first step then in persevering in our faith is drawing near to God, precisely because of what He has done for us in Christ. Instead of ignoring God, instead of blaming God for everything that happens to us, we first recognize God has drawn near to us in Christ. So we go to Him in prayer. We go to Him in worship knowing that, well, He hears our prayers. We draw near to God. We persevere by drawing near to God. First point. Second point, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Verse 23. So 
So verse 23 gives us the second let us in our passage. Let me read the whole passage, very short. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So what is this hope that we profess? Right, remember what the, what the author of Hebrews has been talking about. And here, when he talks about the hope that we profess, is most likely referring to the sonship, to the priesthood of Jesus. Hebrews 6, verse 19 and 20, he says this, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. We are forerunner, Jesus, that he has entered on our behalf. Our profession of this hope then becomes the steadfast anchor for our soul. It stabilizes us in this chaotic, ever-changing world. Everything around us may change, but the one thing that does not change in our lives is our confession in an immutable, unchanging God. Now, for the original readers of Hebrews or hearers of Hebrews, the understanding of their hope or their profession, primarily in this point in this book is the sonship and priesthood of Christ. That's what they needed in the situation they find themselves in. However, throughout the centuries, as the Christian church grows and grows, the Christian church has faced different theological and ethical challenges. And as that happens, what happens is that our Christian forefathers, they rose up to those challenges they dug deep into the scriptures, they studied those scriptures, and as a result of that, we get more and more clarity regarding what the Bible teaches about different doctrines, from the doctrine of God to the doctrine of Christ to the doctrine of salvation, and on and on and on. Now, it's not like they added to the scriptures, but rather what they did was they clarified and summarized what the scriptures taught us about these doctrines. So we fast forward to today, as a Christian church, what we have now as a church is a more fully orbed and comprehensive understanding of our faith. All because of all the work of Christian scholars throughout the centuries. Right, the Christian church, we've been around for 2,000 years. And in those 2,000 years, we have plenty of challenges, objections, questions over these centuries that we have had to face and we have had to answer, and we did. So no struggles, no matter what our struggles or questions that we may have about a Christian faith, we can be confident that someone somewhere throughout the history of the church, they have thought about it, they have struggled through that, and worked hard at it, and provided an answer for it. And that's one reason why we can hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Let me give you one example. Right? At the start, I talked about deconstructionism. And one high-profile person who went through this is Marty Sampson. So he was a very prominent singer-songwriter. And he posted on Instagram about how disillusioned he has been with the Christian faith. And this is what he said in Instagram. So let me quote him. This is a soapbox moment. So I, here, here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved and yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. 
They can also be some of, some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I'm not in anymore. I want genuine truth. Not just I just believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. That's what he said in his Instagram. Now, I don't want to go through necessarily all the reasons and factors that he left the faith. Only God and he himself knows the full truth. And usually in cases like this, what happens is that there are many factors combined. It's almost never just one factor. But I just want to address very quickly what he posted here. Every single thing he mentioned in that post is something that Christians have been talking and dealt with for centuries. That's not something new or surprising. It's not something new or surprising. That's why it's important that to make sure that when we talk about holding unswervingly to the hope that we profess, we don't forget what our forefathers have accomplished for us. We stand on the shoulders of giants. It is a profession of hope that spans centuries with the collective wisdom from really smart Christians from all over the world, from all different cultures. Right? The Christian faith did not just begin 20 or 30 years ago. If you are someone here and you are going through the phase of deconstructing your faith, well, let me encourage you to take one step further. Don't just stop at deconstructing your faith. Instead, go one step further and reconstruct your faith. Build it up again with insights and wisdom from our Christian forefathers, from Christians who have thought long and hard about the questions that you may have. It will take time. It will take effort. But it is worth it. And one analogy that I've heard is this. It's like you, know, you having thought yourself uh, how to play tennis as you grow up from young. So you will play casually with your family, play casually with your friends. And you reach a point where you feel like you can't improve any further. So what you do is you go and take tennis lessons from a coach. And then in the first lesson, you realize the coach tells you your footwork is wrong. Your tennis racket grip is wrong. The way you throw the ball to serve is wrong. Suddenly, you feel like you don't know how to play tennis anymore. You feel awkward. You feel disoriented because you have to change everything you had known from childhood. But if you persevere on in your lessons, eventually what happens is that you get much better than you would before because you have a much stronger foundation you're building on. It's the same with the Christian faith. All these questions may not be the ones that you have ever thought about as you grew up in the faith. And as you start exploring, sometimes you feel a bit confused, you feel a bit overwhelmed, and that's normal. But persevere, keep going, keep learning, keep finding out what other Christians have believed, and once you have done that, your faith will be in a much stronger place than it used to be. But there is a greater and more fundamental reason why we hold on to our faith. And that comes at the end of the sentence. For he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. We hold fast to our confession of faith because of who God is, because of who Christ is, because of who the Holy Spirit is, and what our triune God has done for us. Because he who promised is faithful. We have a faithful God 
who keeps His promises. And we hold on to those promises tightly, letting those promises take root in our hearts. Don't lose sight of that as we talk about these things, as we do these things. Don't forget what God has done for us through Christ by the Spirit. He who promised is faithful. So we hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. So how do we have a faith that perseveres? We hold on to that hope built upon a God who has never failed in keeping His promises. And to further strengthen this hope, it is a hope that has withstood centuries of questions and challenges and objections. It's a hope that's been held by Christians across all ages, across the world, across ethnic and cultural boundaries. The Christian faith is not just a merely Western faith. And the hope of Christ has never failed. And so we hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. So the first, let us, he implores us to draw near to God. Second thing, he, lets, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Our third point, let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. First two, let us is fo- focus on God himself the vertical dimension in our perseverance of our faith. In this third point, he encourages us to focus on the horizontal part of it. He calls us to let us consider each other how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us give attention to one another. And notice he says spur one another on, not encourage one another. It is uh, stronger than that. Another word that we could have used is provoke but provoke in a good way. Provoke each other to love and good deeds. And how are we to do that? Well, let's read the rest of the sentence. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. One way we spur one another on toward love and good deeds is by meeting together. And he's not talking about Zoom meetings. And how Christians have done that throughout the centuries is through the weekly gathering of the local church, like what we're doing right now. We meet together every week, and one of the purposes we meet together is to provoke one another towards love and good deeds. It is important that we remember and know this. Because there are Christians, right, they have viewed, you know, what's most important during the church service is the preaching of the Word of God, rightly so. But what happens is that sometimes these Christians, what they will do, they will skip the time of singing, come late for church just in time for the sermon. Music is not too important. So they come, they listen to the sermon. As soon as the sermon ends, they switch off their brains and they leave church. Either that or they miss church and then they go and watch a sermon online from a pastor that they like because that's central, right? Or listening to the preaching of God's Word is not the only reason we gather. It is important. It is central, yes. The other reason for all of us to gather together weekly is so that we can encourage, we can spur, we can provoke one another up toward love and good deeds. If we don't meet up together, 
Well, it's impossible for us to do that, isn't it? It is vitally important to a Christian's life to be a part of this weekly gathering of the local church. Because we come, we first encounter God's Word preached to us, and then secondly, we spur one another on toward love and good deeds. In other words, Christian discipleship. It is in a Christian service that we get Christians across demographics to be together, learning to love one another, learning to serve one another. And it is this discipline of attending the weekly gathering of the local church that helps us to persevere in our faith. Because we come, we have the promises of God proclaimed to us once again through the preached word, and then we're gathered with other Christians who would be encouraging us, who will be spurring us on, who will be telling us about God and um, sharing testimonies about what God has done for us. And if we do this week after week after week, our faith is nourished, our faith is fed, and we persevere in our faith. But what happens if we stop meeting together, if we stop coming to church services? Right? Sometimes I have people say to me after missing church for one week and you know, they go Zoom and watch that. They will say, oh, I don't feel any different. You know, I, in fact, I save so much time on the weekends if I just watch the sermon online. Then and then I can do, go do other things. It's just so much more convenient. What do you think happens after that? It becomes just that bit easier to miss the next one. And then next thing you know, you'll be missing church twice a month. And after that, next thing you know, you're only attending church once every three months. And then finally, every Easter, every Christmas, and then suddenly you find your faith all shriveled up and died. One of my concerns throughout the pandemic is how complacent it has made so many Christians with regards to church attendance. See, as we went through lockdowns, what churches had to do is to start setting up online services for Christians to be a part of, particularly those who are sick, those who have genuine health concerns, rightly so. But that also has given other Christians the excuse to stay online or stay home when they don't feel like it, or when it is inconvenient to attend in person. No, no, no. What the author of Hebrews say, we do not give up or neglect meeting together. It is important for the health of your faith to meet together week after week to receive grace as the word is preached and to be encouraged with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not give up meeting together and then he adds, as some are in the habit of doing, which 2,000 years later, we still have the same problems, isn't it? But do not give up meeting together. So if you are here, if you're watching this online right now at home, and you have no good reason to be missing church, let me challenge you. Let me challenge you to go back physically to church. Now, there are good reasons to miss church, yes, but if you have no good reason, let me challenge you to be physically back at church. Do not give up meeting together. If you're watching this from another country and you're not regularly attending a local church where you are at, well, let me challenge you to find a biblically sound church and be a part of that weekly. 
Now, some of you here physically now, you may be thinking, whew, I'm safe. You know, I'm off the hook. I attend church every week. Well, notice one more aspect here. When we meet together every week in church, it's not a passive thing. Why we don't come to our church service, sit at the back, listen to the sermon, leave immediately after the sermon. That's not what we do. We are here to consider, to think about, to give attention to one another. How we can encourage, how we can provoke, how we can spur one another on in our Christian discipleship. It's not a passive activity when we come to church. After coming to church, after drinking from the waters of grace of the preached word, we bless one another, we encourage one another, we pray for one another, we serve one another. Mark Dever, who is a pastor in a church in America, he tells of a time when he was talking to a full-time missionary who did not belong to a local church. <clears throat> so he found out, and then he asked his missionary, you know, why are you not part of a local church? Why don't you be a part of them? So this missionary told him that, you know, the local church would really only slow me down in my work in missions. And so Mark Dever told him this. Brother, have you ever thought the opposite? Instead of thinking the local church would slow you down, that if you're a part of that church, you would speed them up. And I'm hoping that you have noticed this by now of all three points today. They all begin with, let us, let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us, let us, let us. Our faith is not an individual faith. It is a faith that's lived out together with others. And one of the ways that we have a persevering faith is that we live out together with others. People who will be praying for you, supporting you, encouraging you, reminding you of who God is, and you in turn doing that to others. And when you make that a priority in your Christian life, your faith will be a persevering one, no matter what this life and what this world will throw at you. As we come to the end of the sermon, I thought about, you know what, what I can do is tell stories about how churches have meant for different Christians over the years. Well, I've decided not to do that because, well, each local church is unique. They have their own stories to tell. And when I think of Subi Church and our history, we've been around for more than 120 years. We were established here in this corner in 1898. We have our own wonderful, unique, and joyful stories to tell. And I'm sure there are these stories that's been lived and told among the people of God about how they have persevered on, supporting one another throughout that time. And some people, they're a little bit anxious because they recognize Ben is stepping down, and we're looking for the next senior pastor, and you know, we have no news there yet. But as the author of Hebrews say later on in chapter 13, he says, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The leaders of Subi Church may change, but the one to whom we worship will never change. Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. No matter what happens in the future, let us continue to write stories of perseverance of faith in this church 
and we do it together for the next 10, 20, 30, the next century to come. A faith that perseveres is a faith that understands that we need to live it out together with others. Together we draw near to God with a sincere heart. Together we hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. And together we spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And when we do all those things together, we will have a persevering faith. A faith that trusts in what God has done through Christ as the Son of God, as our great high priest. And together, you know, we stand on God's great promises of his redemption as God's people, and we do it together. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you, and we want to recognize how good you have been to us in and through Christ. We thank you that he is the true Son of God, the Son of God who has loved us and gave himself for us. We also recognize he is our great high priest, the one who has went into the temple, in many senses, in heaven, and sacrificed himself for us once and for all, that now we stand before you righteous. And Father, we, as your people, we want to persevere in our faith. Help us to draw